Josh, good morning. Um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Rachel, and I'm an ordinand, which means I'm training to become a vicar at St. Melitus College, which is in London. Um, and I'm nearly in my first year. I've passed all my assignments, thank you very much. So far, I've still got a few more to hand in, um, so it's looking good. Um, but I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you for the welcome that you've given us as a family this year as well. Um, Jack and Barnaby are definitely very at home here as I'm sure most of you see most weeks. Um, before um, I started training to be a vicar, I was um, a head of performing arts at a, a secondary school in Coventry. And as a former performing arts teacher, it's probably no surprise if I tell you that I absolutely love musicals. Um, I've seen many, many musicals. And they all have quite a similar formula, regardless of the theme. The first half ends with a big number, leaving everyone excited and invested and ready to come back. And they come back to watch the second half. You might even feel slightly deflated. How could that finale be topped? But of course, the second act builds up to the greatest finale, which happens at the end. And this is where we find ourselves in our passage this morning, in the second act, which builds up to the grand finale, Now, I don't think when they named the Book of Acts, they were thinking about musicals, um, but the formula does fit. The finale to Act 1 has just happened. Jesus has risen from the dead and come back in victory. End of Act 1. And when we come back, we are in Act 2, the Book of Acts. What more could there be? What's the point of carrying on? Could there ever be a greater moment than when Jesus rose from the dead? But there is a greater day to come. We are living in the now and not yet of Christ's victory. It's what is referred to in 1 Corinthians when it says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. For now we only... We see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We do not see the fullness of the victory that Jesus won for us at the end of the first act. We have to wait for the finale for it to be fully realised. We are in act two, waiting for the greatest finale, when Jesus will come again where we will fully know all that Jesus won for us on the cross. And it says in Revelation about that, verse 21, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That surely is the greatest finale. And herein lies the challenge of the passage for us. Are we focused on the end of Act 1 or on the end of Act 2? Are we looking backwards or forwards? Are we looking back to the cross and resurrection or looking forward to Jesus returning again? One is about what Jesus did for us. One is about what Jesus asked us to do. Because where we focus will ultimately be driving how we live our lives as disciples. 
I want no one to mishear me today. The cross and resurrection of Jesus is the single greatest event in history. In a moment of beautiful exchange, it says in 1 Peter 3, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. We should always be in awe of what Jesus did. As the old hymn says, which Matt Redmond ripped off, may I never lose the wonder, the wonder of your mercy. But we are saved people with a mission, with a great commission to make disciples because Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back and this is great news. If we struggle with this, then the disciples did too. I'm always so thankful for the humanity of the disciples because they show us when we get things wrong and we see how to correct our wrong thinking. The disciples were confused by what Jesus said. In verse 4 in our passage in Acts 1, it says, do, uh, Jesus said, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. In verse 6, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? These are the disciples who received the great commission in Matthew to go and make disciples of all nations. But despite receiving this, the disciples are often slow to understand and at times slow to obey. Here we are, moments before Christ's ascension, and the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still haven't understood. They're thinking in nationalistic, political terms, wanting to see Christ overthrow the occupying Roman enemies and no doubt seeing themselves as sharing in some of Christ's ruling power and honour. The disciples are thinking materially, nationally and selfishly about Jesus transforming their immediate situation. They hadn't captured the vision that this was not about the here and now, but about the grand finale, Jesus returning. They were interested in what Jesus will do and what they can gain from it. Jesus was interested in what they will do and what the world will gain from it. Are we looking back to the cross and resurrection or looking forward to Jesus returning again? Because where we focus will ultimately be driving how we live our lives as disciples of Jesus. If we spend our time just looking backwards at the cross of Jesus, then our discipleship will become very internal. And I know this is where I have been for most of my Christian life, focusing on my own personal relationship with Jesus. And there is great treasure in that. By not always focusing on the fact Jesus will return, I have sometimes lost the call that Jesus gave us to go and make disciples. I'm sure if we only focused on the fact that Jesus is returning, then we would forget the intimacy and grace of the cross, as we would be focused on saving people from the coming judgment, possibly where the street preachers you often used to see with the bells found their motivation preaching of a God of hell, fire and damnation. We need to be people who hold both intention, as people living between the two finales. We have to hold on to the end of the first act, 
Jesus' death and resurrection, with the finale still to come, Jesus returning to judge the earth, if we are to be effective in completing the great commission Jesus gave us. To help us to do that this morning, we're going to focus on just one part of one of the verses, verse 8, which says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will receive power. The word for power used here is dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite from. This isn't like um, a power drink um, giving us a burst of energy. This power is like dynamite. It's explosive. Think about if I chucked a stick of dynamite onto the car park. I'm not going to do it, just an example. It would change the landscape. It would be obvious to all that there had been great power. And anyone who'd been close enough would have felt the power of the dynamite. That is the promise, the power we are promised here. And it's that power we see displayed through the book of Acts. The risen Jesus tells his disciples to wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit before they set to work as his witnesses. Even such extensive and intensive instruction by the risen Jesus is not enough. They have to be clothed with power from on high through the Holy Spirit. These disciples have seen Jesus raised and ascended, yet still told to wait for this power. This is testimony to the absolute necessity and importance of this power and the baptism with the Holy Spirit. What is evident when we look at the disciples is that before they received the Spirit, they found it difficult to do very easy things like acknowledge Christ. Whereas after they received the Spirit, they found it easy to do the difficult things like miracles and ultimately, for most of them, martyrdom. But what is this power? In the rest of Acts, whenever this same word, dunamis, is used, it talks about miracles. So the theologian Simon Ponsonby, who's based at St. Aldate's in Oxford, says, it seems safe to interpret dunamis in Acts 1 as referring not to power to embolden witness, but more likely power which will affect miracles, miracles that will confirm the word that witnesses to Christ. So we can read this verse, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, as a promise that the church will receive the Spirit's power, a power to affect signs and wonders. These will accompany the growing witness to Christ. God does not expect us to serve and speak for him without his help. The mandate and the means come together. We should also note Luke, the writer of Luke and Acts, his interest in power. His purpose for writing Luke and Acts is to show the truth or certainty of the Christian gospel. But this truth cannot be proven by mere words. It also takes power. Luke repeatedly stresses that the apostles' confident testimony to Jesus was accompanied by many wonders and signs. And it's all the way through Acts. If you look at Acts 2.43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. In Acts 3, 
Peter heals the lame beggar at the temple gate. In Acts 5, verse 12, it says the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And then later on, verse 16, crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of them were healed. In a way, the biggest question for us when we come to read Acts as Christians is how effective are we in demonstrating the power of the name of Jesus? So how will this power come to us? Well, if you look at verse 5, it says, John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. The power comes through baptism with the Holy Spirit. Being baptised in or with the Spirit, it's a verb, not a noun. Baptizo means dip, immerse, wash, plunge, sink, drench, overwhelm, soak. I think I was very fearful of being baptised with the Holy Spirit. I grew up in a church where baptism with the Holy Spirit wasn't mentioned let alone sought after. So I grew up very mocking and sceptical of people who raise their hands in worship, let alone do anything like speaking tongues. All I can say is that for me, I am still on this journey. But as I have experienced the Holy Spirit to baptize, sorry, as I've asked the Holy Spirit to baptize me and fill me with his presence, I've experienced such a deeper connection with God and the things I feared are now things I relish. I still have a long way to go, but now look with envy on those who seem to be fully immersed in the Holy Spirit. I want that surrender and abandonment more in my life because as I have stepped into the waters of the baptism with the Holy Spirit... What I have experienced has been good, not scary. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is not a one-off event like the moment we give ourselves to Jesus. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Saviour, you are saved and nothing can snatch you from the hands of your Heavenly Father, as it says in John. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit as it says in Ephesians, and the same power that raised Christ from the dead has changed you, filled you, and made his home in you, as it says in Romans. And yet when Paul wrote to the Ephesians church, he told them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit only played a role in our lives at the moment of salvation, Paul would have used the past tense of the verb to identify that we were done being filled. Instead, he used the present tense to denote the continual need for filling. When the great evangelist D.L. Moody was asked why he needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he replied, because I leak. Regardless of how life treats us, this side of heaven, you and I will always drip fuel from our fleshy tanks. So when Paul told the Ephesians to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit, he was not just describing one special moment. He was revealing an essential habit. Life is going to run you dry. And every step of the way, life could reveal your leaks. 
You are going to run on something. Make sure it is the moment-by-moment filling of the Holy Spirit. We are to go on being filled. Look at Peter. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and preached the singly most successful recorded evangelistic sermon in Acts 2, seeing thousands come to bow the knee before Jesus. But in chapter 4 of Acts, when Peter was before the Sanhedrin, we read in verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them. And later on in verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. If Peter, who witnessed Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension and received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, needed to be filled continuously, how much more do we need to? We need a new filling for each Christian service, which is why so often we pray, come Holy Spirit from the front. It's not that the Holy Spirit is absent or that we need to remind him to turn up and come and do his job, but because we leak and we want more. We had a log burner fitted this winter and sometimes we come in and the fire looks like it's out. But when we chuck a log on and open the vents, the fire roars back to life. The fire hadn't gone out, although it had lost its ferocity and its ability to emit heat. Maybe that's a picture some of us can relate to here this morning. We feel a bit like that log burner. We have a small amount of heat in us, but some of the time we just feel like we're going through the motions, if we're being honest. Maybe we have been a roaring log burner, roaring with flames, and we mourn for those days, but we think we will never get back to that. I think God wants to throw a log on some of us and open the vents this morning and roar us back, back into life more than just stir us into flame. We are to keep on asking to be filled, and we're going to do that shortly. Before I close, I want to read from John Stott's book, Baptism and Fullness, where he provides some really powerful insights on this important phrase. He says, first, it is in the imperative mood, be filled. It's not a tentative suggestion, a mild recommendation, a polite piece of advice. It is a command that comes to us from Christ with all the authority of one of his chosen apostles. We have no more liberty to escape this duty than we have the ethical duties which surround the text. For example, to speak the truth, to do honest work, to be kind and forgiving to one another, or to live lives of purity and love. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is not optional for the Christian, but obligatory. The verb is in the present tense. The present imperative, be filled with the Holy Spirit, indicates not some dramatic or decisive experience that will settle the issue for good, but a continuous appropriation. He goes on to say, perhaps an illustration will help at this point to show that the fullness of the Spirit is intended, not, is intended to be not static, but a developing exercise. Let us compare two people. 
One is a baby, newborn and weighing seven pounds, who has just begun to breathe. The other is a full-grown man, six feet in height and 180 pounds in weight. Both are fit and healthy. Both are breathing properly and both may be described as filled with air. What then is the difference between them? It lies in the capacity of their lungs. Both are filled, yet one is more filled than the other because his capacity is so much greater. The same is true of spiritual life and growth. Who will deny that a newborn baby in Christ is filled with the Spirit? The body of every believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Are we to suppose that when the Holy Spirit enters his temple, he does not fill it? A mature and godly Christian of many years standing is filled with the Spirit also. The difference between them is to be found in what might be called their spiritual lung capacity, namely the measure of their believing grasp of God's purpose for them. The difference between them is to be found in what might be called their spiritual lung capacity. What is our lung capacity? Do we really believe that God has this purpose for us? Church in history internalises the work of the Holy Spirit, but he was given to externalise and evangelise, to look forward as well as back. He was given to enable us to complete the command to witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Holy Spirit did not come for our entertainment or excitement, but for our empowerment for evangelism. How often do we seek the Holy Spirit only for our own desires and purposes? The theologian Michael Green says the primary purpose the Spirit is given for is mission. We haven't lacked the supporters or opportunities or resources, but the lack has been the Spirit's power in that we have failed to avail ourselves of what is readily available. We can ask the Holy Spirit to fill us and keep on filling us to aid us to do what Jesus has commanded us to do. And this is what lies behind thy kingdom come. I wasn't going to miss the opportunity to talk about it. We need the Holy Spirit to keep on filling us to pray and witness to our friends and families. And the events this week will be places where we can be filled and places where we, can, we are helped to witness, to do just that, to proclaim Jesus and bring transformation in a broken world. The Spirit's whole role is missionary. He has been about bringing Jesus, the Saviour, into the world by enabling Mary to conceive Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, completing Jesus' mission and completing the gospel. And now that Spirit is in us, enabling us to complete the Great Commission. The Holy Spirit is in us, and it is right that we ask for more of him.